Amen. All right, the third chapter of Romans. Again, if you would, Romans chapter number 3. And we want to draw our attention down to verse number 27, down through the end of the chapter. And as each one of these weeks and each one of these messages has been building on each other, if you're keeping track, this would be the righteousness of God part 3. And um, so we've been dealing with this thought of the righteousness of God. Beginning there in verse 27, down through the end of the chapter, the Bible says, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Notice verse 28, Paul in a really what we would define as a concluding statement to chapter 3 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. When we think about what the law required and we think about what deeds are, we understand that those deeds are the works in which uh, we believe grant us favor or grant us righteousness with God. As we have been going through this text, we've been looking at this chapter, we've been in this chapter for a number of weeks now, we've been coming to this conclusion that justification is without the deeds of the law or apart from the deeds of the law. Justification here, Paul makes very clear. He says, nor to be declared righteous or to be declared one of God's works of the law are fully excluded. Now, it doesn't mean that as children of God today, we don't have works. It doesn't mean that we don't do good things. We ought to be living and performing good works. But the two are disconnected. We are not justified by works. Our works do not justify. No matter how good our deeds, they will never provide to us the righteousness of God in which Paul is talking about here. So Paul affirms this so strongly. He says that this cannot be taken apart. You've, you've got to see that justification by grace is so strongly evident. It's without dispute that no man can argue with that conclusion. Man's righteousness can in no way, shape, or form be connected to his works. He says it's only by faith. As we look at this concluding verses this morning, and again, I realize that these have all been building, and if we would have tried to preach this in one message, we would have been here for hours. So we've been building each one of these messages, but as we've studied the righteousness of God and we've considered what the righteousness of God really is, we understand that what Paul's coming to the conclusion of is that the righteousness of God leaves the sinner no room to boast. That's what he says here. He says, where is boasting then? Or where can man take credit? And he says, it is excluded. That means you and I today can in no way, shape, or form take any boasting or make any boast about our merit or our worthiness to receive the justification or the righteousness of God. Paul spells this out so that we won't have any 
anything to dispute about it. We could simply look at this and we can say, okay, there's the law and then there's the works. There is grace and then there's works. We have to understand that he says that the boasting is not within us at all. You and I cannot find a place to boast in our righteousness. The law of works, if our salvation was based upon our works, we would have a place to boast. What would we boast in? We would boast in our works, how much better our works were than someone else. That's why we can never look at one another and say, well, I'm more saved than you are, or I have better works to show. And so that means I've been saved by those things. No, the reality here is, is that we should have, we could merit nothing because the law would have declared us guilty. We should have merited death. That's what we've earned. We've earned eternal separation. Someone says, what do I have to do to go to hell? Absolutely nothing. You don't really have to do anything because we've, that's what we've earned. But grace has been given. And if you have experienced God's grace and you have received God's grace, then you know that your justification has nothing to do with your works. It only has to do with His grace. Paul says all boasting has got to be put away. It's easy for a man to boast in his accomplishments. It's easy for a man to say what he's good at. It's easy for a man to say, this is what I can take credit for. Matter of fact, uh, it, sometimes it's the definition of a man to say, here's what we often say, what do you do? You know, sometimes we meet somebody for the first time. Uh, I know with men, one of the first things we ask, what do you do? What do you do for work? Often we associate that with who they are. We, we associate that, that whatever they tell us gives us an idea of who they are. Now, it shouldn't be that way. It really shouldn't. I should not define you and you shouldn't define me by what I do for a living. But I would say this, that our salvation is not defined by what we do. Our, our salvation is defined by what Christ has done. So when I look to my salvation, I don't say, Christ, what part of this did I play? What part did you play? I have to look to him and say, you have performed it all. You've performed all of my salvation. You're the one that's declared me justified and righteous in your sight. Paul says, where is the boasting? Then it is excluded. By what law? By what law of works? He, he goes on to remind us here that the works, uh, it's not in the man who works for his salvation, but it's in the man who believes. Salvation is not found in the man who works, but in the man who believes. Salvation is not found in the man who merits it or is worthy of it. It is found in the man who is humbled and realizes my justification is by God's grace. The law of works, if it was applicable to us today, would only make us more proud. It would only make us boast more. If God even said, hey, take credit for just a little bit, it would only make us boast in how well we did at that one aspect of keeping the law. But there is no place. Man often rejoices in what he builds. He, he rejoices in what he accomplishes. We give awards to people who accomplish the most. We hold people who accomplish the most and we give them high places of honor. In salvation... It's not about a place of honor. You don't receive a place of honor. Christ is in that place of honor because he's the only one worthy of the honor. So man, it's not God and Christ here and then we're sitting alongside God with the, man, with the same honor. It is Christ alone. We've sung about the throne of God. Notice that's a single throne. 
It's a throne of God. It's a place where deity, it's a place where perfect righteousness, perfect sinless resides. He who has no sin resides there. You and I, we're without sin today only because of the imputed righteousness of Christ because of what he's done, but we're not worthy to assume the throne that God alone can only take credit for. But we ought to stop our boasting in our justification. We ought to stop our boasting in our salvation and just simply say the righteousness of God is all by faith and it's all of God. He says it's not the law of works, but by the law of faith. The fact that Paul keeps this thought connected, the law of faith, not the law of works, but the law of faith. Faith is trust. It's not doing. Faith is trust. It's not doing. Faith doesn't, faith doesn't keep us from proclaiming Christ. Faith actually unhinges our mouth and says, listen, I want to proclaim what God has done not any boasting in myself. I'm just going to proclaim what God has. I remember Paul earlier used that phrase about uh, in verse number 19 when he said, Now we know that what, so, what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. If God holds us accountable to the law, we have nothing to say because the law would declare us guilty. But because God has not held us to keep the law perfectly, our mouths ought to be unhinged to proclaim by faith what Christ has done for us. A person saved by grace will proclaim they've been saved by grace. They will be the ones that have everlasting praise on their lips. Because it's not about works. It's about faith. God's way of righteousness is he performs the work. We are sent to declare his work. That's what we do. He says, therefore, we conclude. You know, when you read a conclusion, either in a paper, you, you come to a conclusion, a book. It, it sets you up for the end. It sets you up for what's getting ready to be said. And uh, some people have this uh, habit of reading the last chapter of a book first. They want to know how it happens. They want to know what happens. But they don't have the, the right context Okay, they don't have the right context what the rest of the book is about. If I read the end of a book, you choose any book, I'm going to be quite lost as to who the characters are and how they got to that place. If I try to take justification or I try to take salvation in just one aspect of it, I'm going to lose sight of the reality of what righteousness really is about. We conclude that man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. All the law does is lays us open before God, says, here's what we're guilty of, here's where we failed, and we're deprived of any glory at all. Faith, faith is about boasting in God, not boasting in self. We boast in God, not in what we have done, but what God has done. Faith says, I've received everything from God. Faith says, God has done it all, and I claim nothing for myself. That's, that's what he's doing here. We conclude a man is justified by faith without the gift or the deeds of the law. It is a gift. It's a gift of God. This conclusion tells us justification is by faith without a single work of the law. 
Then Paul, again, if we just read this and we had not been studying the entire chapter, we might be confused as to why does Paul bring up God of the Jews and God of the Gentiles? Because remember, there was two ways of viewing this. The Jews believed that they could get to God or that they could be justified by the keeping of the law or the doing of works. The Gentiles were being held that it was being revealed to them in nature. God says that it's the same for the Jews as it is the Gentiles. It says he is not just the God of the Jews only, but he's also the God of the Gentiles also. Through Christ, for, God, for the Gentiles and through Christ through the Jews, it is exactly the same. He is the God of both. Now, when we, we read language like this, often we, we don't understand exactly what he's saying here, but is he the God of the Jews only, and is he not also of the Gentiles? Notice the little phrase, God of. Okay, this God of, or of the Gentiles. This God of, is a, it's a language of the covenant that's found in God. There is a covenant that God has made with his people. There is a promise to bring them to glory. That promise was made before the foundation of the world. There, there is, uh, that covenant was made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We refer to it as the covenant of grace. It was made before the foundation of the world, before any of us were even in existence, that he would be the God. There's a couple of places where the Bible mentions this particular phrase about being the God of the Jews only. But what the point is, and what Paul's bringing us to conclude here, is just as the righteousness of God leaves no room for the sinner to boast, the righteousness of God declares that all are the same in their standing before God. All are the same. There's not one throne of God for the Jews and one throne of God for the Gentiles. When we get to glory, there's not going to be one room for you that are of this and you that are of this. When we sing about the throne of God today, we sing that in a unified manner. If I talk about the throne of God today as a child of God, as a believer, that same throne of God is the same even in Australia. There isn't a throne of God for the Australia. There's not a throne of God for the United States. There's not a throne of, it is the throne of God. It is a single throne. It is the only place. It's God's throne. It's important because man believes there are many gods. Sinful man believes there are many ways to get to this God. The Bible declares there's only one way to get to the single, only God Almighty, and that's through Jesus Christ and through the gift of salvation. Anyone before that throne is going to be before the throne of God by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not by works of what they have done. Paul makes a very clear conclusion here. God of is the language of the covenant of God. A covenant is something that cannot be broken. A covenant is something that God has declared will always remain. Hold your place there in Romans and go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and look at verse 21. And look down at verse number 3. Let's get there first. We might actually share a couple other verses here. Yeah, matter of fact, let's, let's begin in verse 1. Revelation 21, we're coming to that conclusion. Remember I told you, if we read the conclusion of a book first, it doesn't always have the same meaning. But someone who has been grounded in the true context of what this all means, Revelation 21 is a great reminder of the righteousness of God. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Now just stop for a minute and think about that. This almighty God, this throne we sang about this morning, because of the righteousness of God, he will dwell with his people. And they shall be his people. That's part of God's covenant. God says, I will dwell with them, his people. They will be my people. And I love this. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. You know, when, when Christ comes again in glory, it will disrupt all that we have, all we've known. It's hard to look beyond what's in front of you, isn't it? It's hard to see beyond the sorrow. It's hard to see beyond the tears. It's hard to see beyond the trials. But I'm telling you, for those that God has made that covenant with, there's coming a day when he will wipe away every tear is what he's getting ready to say. And God shall wipe away all tears. What I love about that, it not only says who's going to be the one, but how many tears? All. From their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said... Now, he that's upon the throne is Christ. Here's what he says. Behold, I make all things new. I make them new. And he said unto me, write for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. If you're in the 10 o'clock hour, and now that, that phrase even becomes more beautiful. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Now that's the glorious good news for those who are the righteousness of God. But with that, there is always an addendum. There is always an appendix. There is always something that has to be mentioned as a contrast. But the fearful and unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burn up with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a difference between those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. The righteousness, the righteousness of God that indwells the believer today, we have this glorious promise, this glorious conclusion, this, this time that is coming when we, we actually encourage one another by saying things like this. Hey, brother, there's coming a time when there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more darkness, no more sorrow, no more sea. That's because of the covenant of God that he's made with you. And it's all because of his righteousness. If God for a single moment would have held you accountable... For keeping the law, none of the promises of Revelation 21 would have been for you. If he for one time said, you've got to keep the law. Or you've got to do so many good works. Make sure your good works outweigh your bad. No, this righteousness of God leaves no room for the sinner to boast. 
and it declares that all of them all are the same standing in the same standing before God. Paul, as he continues this thought and he talks about this covenant, he says, seeing it, back in verse number 30 of Romans 3, seeing it is of, or it is one God. It is one God. Some have declared Christians today or believers in Christ to be narrow-minded because there's only one way. Praise God for that. Praise God there is only one way. Praise God that there's only one God. And by the way, there aren't other gods. There are only what I'll refer to as imposters. There are no other gods. There's only one. Man can make a god out of anybody he wants to make a god. He can, man is so wicked, he'll make a god, he'll make a tree a god. There are people in this world who worship trees. There are people who worship mountains. They worship symbols. They worship statues. They can call them God, but they're not God. There's only one God. And this Almighty God, the one that we talk about, is on this throne, this, this single throne. You look around the world today, there are people in leadership of all different countries. There are, quote-unquote, thrones everywhere. But with God, there's only one. There's one God now again, what Paul's writing, remember, he's writing to a, a group of believers that came from Jewish background and those who came from Gentile backgrounds. And remember, there was still fighting amongst them saying, how can the Jew be one of God's and how can the Gentile be one of God's? And he's declaring to this mixed congregation, he says, listen, there's one God, whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile. It's not going to come with the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. It is one God. Look what it says, which shall justify the circumcision by faith. The circumcision is a reference to the Jews. We know that because we've been studying that. And uncircumcision, that's the Gentiles, through faith. Notice the connection, it's still faith. Jews and Gentiles, by faith and through faith. It's confirmed they're on the same level. Now, again, you and I don't fully get this. Because we don't have this argument currently raging in our church. Paul was stating that you Jews and you Gentiles, you're on the same level. You know, we've tried to level Christianity. Some of you folks know exactly what I'm saying. We've put some on a higher level and we've put some on a lower level and we say, but praise God, even though you're on the lower level, at least you're going to get in. Do you, do you know that doesn't exist? Do you, know who, do you know why there's a level? Because man, somewhere along the line, still trying to decide that my works are better than your works and my work may be more important than God, so I'm on a high level of Christianity. You're just going to get in. You know, I also you know, have a real problem with that thought of thinking, well, I just got in. I just, I just got in. I just barely got in. I hope you don't use that terminology. Because if you're in Christ, you don't just barely get in. I mean, you make it sound like, why did I just barely get in? That means my works were just barely good enough. That's not what the righteousness of God is. If I'm in Christ, whether I got it today or I've, had to, I've been saved for years, I am going to be on the same standing when it comes to my justification. You are not more justified than me, and I am not more justified than you. 
A man who stands behind a pulpit is not more justified than you. I don't care who stands behind this pulpit or any pulpit in this world. He is not more justified than you. Why? (laughs) Same God. We as believers have tried to make Christianity leveled and say, well, I'm at this level. You're here. What do we judge that by? By works. Works are excluded. Every believer, you ought to have a... Understand what I'm saying. You ought to have a catalog of works. But none of those catalogs, none of the works do anything to gain you a single stitch of righteousness with God. Works ought to follow the believer. I ought to do good things, but not to save me, but because I have been saved. That's why I do good works. It's confirmed that these Jews, these Gentiles, are on the same level with regard. He justifies them both the same way. What's the same way? Faith. This argument is about same. He's not saying this to declare there's a difference. He's saying it to say there is the same. There is sameness in God. I love it, and we'll get to this in Romans 5, chapter, or Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Paul will revisit this subject, and he'll say it again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Understand this. Every one of us this morning, including you, are undeserving of grace You're undeserving of salvation. You're undeserving of justification. But yet, God in His great love has given this gift. But you understand something, that justification is not an expectation. In other words, this is not something that's tentative. It's not something that we hope ends up working out. As a child of God today, I don't have to wonder, am I ever actually, am I going to stand before Christ as one of the redeemed, or am I going to stand before Christ in judgment as he says, depart from me, I never knew you. If I'm justified by Christ through faith, I have 100% assurance today that when I stand before Christ, it will be as one of his own, not as one being said, depart from me, I never knew you. Nothing I will do at the judgment seat of Christ will I say, Christ, I ought to get or I ought to receive because of what I've done. It will simply be a time where all will have been accounted to him, not to me. I have no grounds to stand on. I don't preach today with a hope that the world hopes and says, I hope everything works out. I understand that justification is a, it is a finality. It is the concluding statement where that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, here's the whole conclusion. You can try to spin this any way you want. But he says, we conclude a man's justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Doesn't matter how you slice it. You're never going to come to a conclusion that leads you to say, God is going to merit works when it comes to your salvation. But then he makes this this interesting statement. Because remember, as children of God today, we don't say the law has no value. I would tell you today, if you find yourself in a church someday that tells you 
The law has no meaning or no value for you today. You're in a very dangerous place. The law does matter. The law does have value. Even Paul himself said the law was meant to be a schoolmaster that was to point us to our need of Christ. But he even says one, he takes one step further here. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, if we trust in faith alone, does that make the law and its requirements and its necessities void? The words, God forbid, are the strongest negative response that you'll ever find in the Bible. When it says God forbid, that means he couldn't say it any more strongly. God forbid. In other words, don't ever have that thought. That faith voids the law. Instead, he says, yea, we establish the law. Now, therein lies the issue. He says, we establish. That almost sounds contradictory. It almost says, wait a minute, didn't we just come out of the fact of saying this not by works? How do we establish the law? Here's where it's really getting good. We establish the law through Christ. Christ fulfilled the law perfectly as a child of God in Christ. That is the fulfillment of of the law. I am in Christ. He fulfilled it perfectly. He bore its requirements. Often we make this mistake and we say, God kept the law perfectly by never sinning. That's accurate, but don't forget the, the requirement of those, the, what was required of those who broke the law. Death. Guess what Christ also did? Not only did he not ever sin, not only did he never break any of the law, he bore the penalty of the law, which means the law required a death. Jesus Christ took your place. He took the place and not only obeyed the law perfectly, which you could not do, he also bore the penalty for breaking the law, which means he went to a cross and he was crucified. He bled and he died. And by the way, he had to die. He didn't just go into a deep sleep. The wages of sin is what? Death. He bore the penalty. By the way, as he's hanging on the cross... The entire wrath of God from the very throne room, by the way, that we talk about coming boldly before the throne room of God the Father is pouring out the entire wrath on Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, on behalf of another. He's keeping the law and bearing the penalty that you and I deserved. Today, as a believer... And only believers today can claim, I have that in Christ. You cannot tell a non-believer today, you cannot say to someone who does not trust in Christ, you cannot say, hey, it's all going to work out in the end. Without Christ, I've already read to you what Revelation 21 said, There is a clear dividing line between those who have the righteousness of God and those who do not have the righteousness of God. Without the righteousness of God, there is a penalty and a casting away. But in Christ, 
I can claim those promises today. I can say God will wipe away every tear from my eye. God will take away all the sorrow. The law is abolished in a sense that we can't keep it. It's fulfilled by Christ. It's not meant to be used as a yoke of bondage or we're not to be slave to the law, but the law remains unchanged. In other words, the law is exactly the same as it was when God gave it. And guess who's fulfilling it over and over and over again and who's the only one who's repeatedly kept the law? It's Christ himself. In Christ, in Christ is why we have our righteousness. Folks, we could not even begin to keep the law in any way, shape, or form had it not been through the Lord Jesus Christ saving us. Today, there ought to be a desire for you to keep the law. There ought to be a desire to obey God. There ought to be a desire to say, listen, I know I can't keep it perfectly, but if we use grace as a license to sin, we misunderstand, and I believe we do more than misunderstand. We actually abuse the liberty we have in Christ. If I say, hey, Jesus paid for it all, I can do whatever I want to do. No, because that righteousness ought to lead us to walk different. It ought to lead us to live differently. Paul writes later, and I'll finish with this. He writes later in Romans chapter number 8. He says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, in other words, my, my flesh could not keep it, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see that? Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then that they are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man, here it is, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. Why I can even claim to be alive in Christ today is because of the righteousness of God that's in me. And I didn't get it from keeping the law. I didn't get it from the works of the flesh. I got it all, received it all as a gift of God. Folks, this is all about casting off self-righteousness. It, it really... It, it, People often say, well, preacher, why don't you just get to that point to begin with? We'd have got it a lot earlier. Casting off self-righteous means any ounce of worth, of merit, of works that you believe is keeping you or got you saved, you need to cast it away. There's nothing you're doing today that's keeping you saved. There's nothing you can do nor will ever do that's keeping you saved because in Christ you can't lose what you have. You can't lose it. But folks, self-righteousness is just as much of a problem as it's always been. 
We judge one another often based upon what we do for God. It's not about what we've done. It's about what he has done, what Christ has done for us. Paul says, this righteousness of God, sinners have no place to boast, and all that are in Christ are in the same standing. Folks, the next time we try to put ourselves above another believer and say, I'm so much better than that believer, let's be reminded of the fact in the eyes of God, you are no better. You never have been, or will you ever be? I'd just be thankful that we're actually in God that we're actually in Christ. I heard a man once say he couldn't wait to get to heaven because he couldn't wait to see all that God was going to give him to do because he had led such an important earthly life. Something wrong with that mentality. Maybe God will give us something to do, but let's be careful about boasting in what God's going to give us to do because we have such a high worth or higher view of ourselves. That view needs to be tempered, understanding who I am is only because of what Christ has done. Let's stand all around if you